0: This podcast may contain explicit language. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's seems rather implausible that you just have this pit of snakes randomly in this one spot that you need to protect the Ark. Unless God is somehow commanding the snakes to be around the Ark. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Raiders of the Lost Ark, again. Directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, and John Rhys-Davies. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are continuing our Indiana Jones quest with The Temple of Doom, also starring Harrison Ford, and then Kate Capshaw and Ke hun Kwan. You won't want to miss that one, so check out realgood.com or the RealGood app to find where it's streaming for you. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, let's start here. If fans of the show will remember back, the first episode of this (laughs) podcast, and I'm not including the prologue, which I don't even count as a regular episode, was on this very movie. Now... I think the scores as I read them tonight are going to sound weird, and it's exactly why I selected this to be my first vote for a revisit episode. Dana had his with Back to the Future earlier a few weeks ago uh, before we did The Wizard of Oz, our 75th episode, and then we did a revisit by guest request of Jaws. This is our third revisit episode. It is also the 40th anniversary, uh, or it was a couple of months back in June, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So let's start with where we usually start with most of the shows that we do now. Dad, what is your relationship with this movie? I was in high
1: school when it came out. In fact, it was between my junior and senior years. I'm sure I went to the movie theater in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, where I lived and went and saw the film there. I can't tell you offhand who was with me, Um, I know that there was a whole group of my friends that used to go to the films, especially in the summers, Friday or Saturday night, and so I'm sure
0: we would have went and seen this. I think it was a while before I watched this movie. I don't remember watching it as a kid. I think if memory serves right, I probably would have been about 12, 13, 14, and I'm pretty sure the first copy I ever got of this movie was on one of those weird uh, Asian subtitled movies or DVDs that Mrs. Hagen used to get from eBay. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure I still have that copy. Not that they were, like, bootlegged, I would hope. I never really asked because I didn't... they were not bootlegged.
1: That's what we're stating. For the record, they were
0: not bootlegged. I never asked to verify, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. But... Uh, It was a little odd to have all of the subtitle choices be English, Thai, Vietnamese, Japanese, Chinese, or excuse me, Cantonese, Mandarin, and I don't even remember, Filipino or something. Like, all of them were from that kind of uh, southeast or eastern Asian region. It it was a little odd, but I do remember enjoying this movie right from the get-go. This is a very easy movie to like, and... One of the things that I've kind of learned uh, over the course of it that you don't notice until you do when it's pointed out to you is that the entire conceit of this movie, as originally conceptualized by both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, was that this is based on basically putting together what used to be the serials. Now, what I mean by that is that back in the, what, 30s, 40s, 50s, They didn't have episodic television quite yet. So instead, you'd go to the movie theater and you'd watch a 10-minute short film. But then they would be episodic, so you'd have to go the next week and the next week and the next week. And there were Batman, there were Superman serials and the rest, but there were also adventure ones. And that most of what this movie does is every 10 minutes, there's an action set piece or there's a major cliffhanger of what's going to happen with the action going into the next scene, I guess. This movie never fails to deliver on continuing the energy moving forward and having that momentum throughout the 105 minute run. Well, as I've said, you know, and obviously my dad being
1: the patriarch of the studio used to talk about how on Saturdays you would go and you'd spend all day. You would come in, you'd see the newsreels, you'd see the cartoons, they'd do the shorts You'd usually be like, um, oh, Gene Autry or Roy Rogers or something along those lines. They would do just a short film that was maybe a half an hour. And then they would do the serial, Buck Rogers and uh, Superman, you know, those type of things. And then you would have your, the newsreels and, and such, and then you would also have the, the first feature, and then you would always have a lower-budget film that was the second film, and that's why it was called the B-film, and so that's where, where the term B-movies come from. So, yes, this is exactly what it was supposed to be. It was an homage to, my guess is, is that George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg grew up, were about the same age as, or a little bit, just a few years younger than what my dad would have been. So my guess is, is they grew up, doing almost the same thing, going into the movie theaters on Saturday and spending all day and becoming immersed in the medium. And so this is their effort to
0: try to relive or rekindle their childhood. And I would also say that in many ways it makes it a bridge movie, similar to the one we discussed last week, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, between multiple time periods. You're getting the modern action-adventure films with all of its stylized set pieces and the fact that you're getting these set pieces pumped at you at an almost exponential rate. I mean, you look at something like The Fast and the Furious, the more stunts and more car chases and everything else that they can load into one of those movies, the better it often does. And by continuing to increase the rate of action or plot drive, I think the pacing from this movie This movie, by comparison, might even be slow by today's standards. But at the time, I have to assume it's probably one of the more action-packed movies at that point. And what makes it the perfect bridge into what we get in the modern cinema blockbuster.
1: There wasn't much as far as action film. I mean, you had a few that were just... um, There wasn't the kind of action film that we know today. You had a few car chases and a few things like that but nothing to the extent that this was. So I think you're right. I think this is a bridge between the original or the more tame movie genre and the more action film stars.
0: Especially because we have the boom of the eighties action film and what eventually became of that. The other thing I, I guess I'd like to point out that we probably missed on the original episode and if you've followed us for any of our other revisit episodes, I would just advise you to go listen to that one. It's featured on the episode notes page that I have included in the link on the episode description. Uh, you can go listen to the original one, then this one back to back, so that you can make sure that you filled in on what we nominated for best scene, best performance, and, and the like. So, But before we get too far, let's give everybody some context for this movie. Uh, Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In 1936, American archaeologist Indiana Jones,
1: Harrison Ford, briefed by Army intelligence agents that Nazi German forces are excavating at Tanis, a lost city of Egypt, to seek the Ark of the Covenant. He goes on a quest to recover the Ark before the Nazis. On his journey, Indiana reconnects with his lost love, Marion, Karen Allen, and they travel to Cairo, where they meet Jones' friend, Salah, John Reese Davies, who reveals that Jones' rival, Belloc, Paul Freeman, is assisting the Nazis. What secret does the Ark hold? Will Indiana find the Ark, and will he keep it away from the Nazis?
0: Thank you. Cast for this movie, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood, Paul Freeman as Renee Belloc. Ronald Lacey as Major Arnold Tot. John Reese Davies as Sala. Denholm Elliott as Marcus Brody. Recognition for this movie, it was the highest grossing film of 1981 over Superman 2. It's Estimated $212 million more than doubled the next two grossing films on Golden Pond and Superman 2 domestically in the U.S., and its 354 estimated million internationally was not quite double that of For Your Eyes Only, which finished at $195 million. It was so popular that it stayed in most theaters from its release on June 12, 1981 until March 1982, although some theaters kept it around till that July. Raiders was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Spielberg, Cinematography, and Original Score for John Williams. It won for Best Art Direction, Editing, Sound, Sound Editing, and Visual Effects. A 2014 poll of 2,120 entertainment industry members by The Hollywood Reporter ranked it as the 13th best film ever made. It also listed in the film reference book, 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. In 2005, the Writers Guild of America listed the film's screenplay as the 42nd greatest screenplay of the preceding 75 years on their 101 greatest screenplays list. Empire listed the film at number two on its 2008 list of the 500 greatest movies of all time behind the 1972 crime film The Godfather. They said, quote, no adventure movie is quite so efficiently entertaining, end quote. In 1997, the American Film Institute ranked Raiders number 60 on its list of 100 years, 100 movies list, recognizing the best American films. On the 2007 10th anniversary list, it fell to number 66. On the AFI's list of 100 best thrills, the film was ranked number 10. And the 2003 list of the 100 best heroes and villains ranked the Indiana Jones character as the number two hero behind Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. It also was retired in the National Film Registry in 1999. Did you know? Traditionally, when one of his films is about to open, George Lucas goes on vacation to get away from all the hoopla. As Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope, was just about to open, Lucas went to Hawaii where he was joined by Steven Spielberg. When the grosses for Lucas's film came in and it was clear it was going to be a hit, Lucas relaxed and was able to discuss other topics with his friend. It was at this point that Spielberg confessed he always wanted to direct a James Bond film, to which Lucas replied he had a much better idea, an adventure movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. The conversation happened while the two were making a sandcastle. After their trip, they got together and developed the script with Lawrence Kasdan. Did you know? Freeze-framing during the Well of Souls scene, you can notice a golden pillar with a tiny engraving of R2-D2 and C-3PO from the Star Wars saga. They are also on the wall behind Indy when they first approach the Ark. Did you know? Indy's line to Marion when they are on the ship, it's not the years, honey, it's the mileage, was ad-libbed by Harrison Ford. Did you know? During filming in Tunisia, nearly everyone in the cast and crew got sick except for Steven Spielberg. It is thought that he avoided illness by eating only the food he'd brought with him, a lot of cans of SpaghettiOs. Did you know? The out-of-control airplane actually ran over Harrison Ford's knee, tearing a ligament in his left leg. Lucky for him, the heat had turned the rubber's tires soft, so it did not crush the bone. Rather than submit to Tunisian healthcare, Ford had his knee wrapped in ice and carried on. Did you know? Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson wrote a script during the shooting breaks on the location of this film. Matheson was there to visit her husband Harrison Ford, and Spielberg dictated to her a story idea he had. That script was eventually called E.T., the Extraterrestrial. Did you know? The last line to be added to the script was Dietrich's I am uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual because after reading through the script, the screenwriters realized that there was no mention of Jews or the Nazis' hatred of them. Did you know? Although the Nazis speak German in many scenes, most of the lines were dubbed for the German versions of the film because the actor spoke very bad German with a very strong American accent. Some lines were simply wrong, And on the recent DVD release, no German lines are wrong. The majority of the German lines seem to be spoken by native German speakers with a slight South German accent. Did you know? Indiana Jones's Kangaroo Hide Bullwhip was sold in December 1999 at Christie's Auction House in London for $43,000. His jacket and hat are on display at the Smithsonian. All right, Dad. So the original Legacy score we had for this movie was a 6.5. Where did we go wrong? (laughs) So much. We're now breaking it into
1: two parts and looking at his legacy as far as the uh, industry and then legacy as far as the impact of the movie on society in general. Legacy, I I think you're correct. This kind of ushered in the uh, age of the action film and uh, really kind of brought action films into vogue in the 80s and 90s. So uh, I'm going to give it a five on that aspect. Legacy from everything else, uh, I went with a 4.9 because, as far as society and such, Indiana Jones has become such an iconic figure, and the only markdown I can have is is that I think people know of Indiana Jones, but don't necessarily... uh, Uh, Related to the specific movie. They've kind of. uh, I'm not even sure everybody has seen. This particular film. So that's the only
0: reason I would mark it down. So was that a 9.5. Or a 4.9. Or excuse me. 4.5 or a Uh, 4.9. 5.
1: Or 9.5. So it was 5 and 4.5. For a 9.5. Okay because
0: I wanted to say that you had said 4.9 there. That's where I ended up going initially to but then you start listing off the amount of things that this thing has produced or encouraged. So, let's just take it from the standpoint with our schedule yet and what we're supposed to be do or doing f- through the rest of the season. We are or we will have visited jaws twice this movie twice. We will have visited E.T. We will have visited the other two Indiana Jones movies, Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan by the end of the year. Now, other than Jaws, all of the rest of those films don't happen if this movie isn't absolutely enormous. This put Steven Spielberg on a completely different level. I know that Jaws and... Close Encounters were huge, huge movies, particularly Jaws. But this was the era where directors, unfortunately, you make one really bad movie and it could cost you your career. 1941 with Belushi is apparently (laughs) one of the biggest abominations that anyone's ever made. And he pretty much bottomed out as far as Hollywood was concerned until this movie came out. There was... Not a huge campaign. It was not a heralded movie. Most people were looking forward to Superman 2 that summer. So I really don't think that we would have St. Stephen or Sir Stephen or however however many names I've referred to him on this podcast. And all of the great films that come afterward, we wouldn't have Schindler's. We wouldn't have multiple Indiana Jones movies. We wouldn't have E.T. We wouldn't have... Uh, you, You start listing things off, the color purple, if it weren't for this movie being successful. So on just that standpoint alone, you're talking about one of the great directors of all time. But it's also a confluence of a lot of people having the best moments of their career for this one. Now, this is Lawrence Kasdan's second script that he ever wrote, or at least that was produced into a movie, the first being The Empire Strikes Back. But he goes on to have several writing credits and uh, actually directing quite a few movies into the 80s, including, I think, what is it, Body Heat? and Oh, yes, very good film. Oh, uh, what's the other one that you constantly are mentioning, but I can't think of the name right now? The Big Chill. Yes, I'm pretty sure he directed and wrote The Big Chill, but I may be wrong on that one. Either way, you have a confluence of him and then Lucas. This is the first thing that he does outside of Star Wars and his production company. The fact that this franchise is now making its fifth movie, the fact that it turned Harrison Ford into probably the most bankable movie star of the 80s. I mean, you start to think about Harrison Ford's films. It, it's enormous. You've got Star Wars, then he was in uh, Apocalypse Now for a small bit part. He's in Empire, he's in this, he's in Blade Runner, then he's in Indiana Jones again. So, I mean, he's one of the biggest stars going into the early 90s. So I think just on Spielberg, on the people who it affected, and that part of it, that could even take it up probably past a nine and a half. But you also had a boom. This is the thing most connected with archaeology. Period. Archaeologists point at this, and it's like, oh, you're studying. Oh, you want to? You're studying archaeology. You want to be Indiana Jones? The hat is iconic. The whip is iconic. And I don't know if I agree with you that everybody hasn't at least seen one Indiana Jones movie. It's to the point where this is another one of these permeations. The only way I could maybe take the half point off for a 9.5 is that it's not comparable to the super mega stuff that we put at 10. But I think this is, if it's not right there, it probably should be. So I'm going to go 10 just for the sake of making this a 9.75. Okay. And by the way,
1: 1941 is absolutely unwatchable.
0: Well, I've been searching for it because I wanted to see all of Spielberg's oh, films at it some is,
1: point. Yes, it is bad. I mean, I, I this is the time frame Belushi and Aykroyd had left Saturday Night Live and were starting to do films. And I was a huge fan of Saturday Night Live from its inception and big fans of Belushi and Aykroyd. So I watched it and uh, I went like, what the fuck is this? Because it made no sense. It was supposedly kind of a dark comedy. It wasn't funny, and it made absolutely no sense,
0: and it was disjointed, and just it was a mess. I've never thought that Spielberg has done comedy particularly well. He does stuff where you have maybe an action comedy, or you have some small moments that find some levity in them. There are moments of levity in Jaws that we talked about a couple of weeks back, or even in this one where Indiana Jones just shoots the guy instead of having the sword fight, which is a classic action trope. But to do a full-fledged comedy is the one thing outside of a musical which he's rectifying this year. So impact significance then. Boy, I, I know that we put Jaws on this pedestal and there are certain movies that like absolutely hit culture like no other it's really hard for me not to give this a 10, but the one place that I can't give it the same full 10 that I did Jaws is I don't see anybody having fear to go to the beaches because of Raiders of the Lost Ark or that it completely takes over a certain sector of the culture that it's a part of everything that's going on. I think this is about as close as you can get though. So I'm going to fudge a little bit. I'm going to go a 9.75. Oh, I suppose. I never gave the original score on this one. We actually gave our original impact significance as a six. From a cultural standpoint, when the film came
1: out, it was huge. I mean, it was in the box offices forever. And everybody saw Indiana Jones. And everybody discussed the film and whatever. As far as in, uh, impact and significance among the uh, critics, I, I, the, the thing I remembered most is, at the time, we were still in this transition of critics were looking at things as like pieces or works of art as opposed to entertainment. And so I think there was a little bit of a deadpan. This was kind of uh, passed off as being a little less than serious and shouldn't be considered wildly uh, as some sort of artistic creation. So from the impact and significance in the industry, I went with a four and a five for
0: society for a nine. I don't find too much fault with that. The only thing I'll, I'll say is, is that I think this transcends the audience industry portion of things, because again, when you talk about impact you're talking within the next few years that harrison ford is the biggest movie star and that uh steven spielberg is probably hollywood's biggest director or you want to talk about that a lot of critics kind of got out of the industry about this point in time because as you said there was a shift where we're getting much more entertainment film being the top dog as opposed to uh the entertainment slash artistic film. I think most of the best movies of the 80s really don't have the awards level, which is why I think the uh, mix of awards where some of the best grossing movies of the year also were the ones that won Oscars, the 80s not so much. You got a lot of them nominated for stuff, like this was nominated for Best Picture, but Steven Spielberg wasn't going to win for an action-adventure film over something that uh, apparently was much more artistic in Chariots of Fire. Also, how John Williams lost best original score to Chariots of Fire, that just is not aged well.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, Chariots of Fire and the score
1: and the scene is like the epitome of, like, anything you do slow motion and boring. ba da 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 da
0: da da I'm not particularly looking forward when we have to do that movie.
1: Well, it's not a bad film, but it is incredibly boring. It is a bad film. We saw it as a youth group and I'm going, wow.
0: Yeah. It's a terrible film. I don't know what you're talking about. There's almost no redeeming quality of that movie. The famous song that everybody knows about that's iconic from the film is played once in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Outside of that... (laughs) I can't figure out what the hell the story structure is. I don't know who our heroes are really supposed to be. I don't know what the point of the movie is. We're just getting this, like, really overarching biopic about people's stories that we didn't feel we ne- or I didn't feel we needed to tell. It's one of the worst mistakes to win a best picture that I can remember outside of the greatest show on Earth. <laughs> Like I uh, at least out of Africa had a central narrative that I could follow and had some redeeming quality. Was a little bit more highbrowed and philosophical. That was just straight shit.
1: Well, and see, you have to understand. This is my. This is when I started really paying attention to the theater and movies and what was going on. And I used to watch. This was when or uh, Siskel and Ebert f- broke away from public TV. And went and did their own show. It was something that, you know, it was almost like you had to. If you were a movie, if you were a movie fan, you would have to go and watch Siskel and Ebert and see what they said. And usually it was uh Siskel taking the more lower brow position, Ebert becoming the high-brow. You kind of went, well, if Ebert
0: hates it, I probably will like it. Alright, so novelty. Originally we had down a nine. Where do you go on this one? Well, because
1: it it, <laughs> it, it this is a tough one for novelty because it's really a, an homage to the serials of the 40s and 50s. So it's not novel to that extent, but it was novel to put it together and to create an action film with pockets where you tell a narrative, then you have an action sequence, a narrative, then an action sequence. And it kind of set a pace. So we had a 9. And quite frankly, I'm going to stay with that 9.
0: So I ended up at a 9.5 in, again, reviewing this. It's a wonderful blend of the old classic adventure films, as we've mentioned, with new filmmaking, fantasy, World War II, Nazis, and the occult that made it a modern-style adventure film that has inspired tons of copycat films like Romancing the Stone, National Treasure, The Mummy, Tomb Raider, among countless other knockoffs. The cinematography, sound, visual effects, editing, and score were all novel for their time, and that's why they were either nominated or awarded. I don't know if some of the visual effects hold up. If you want to listen back to our fairly far-ranging conversation on that one in the first episode, I remember me being on a small rant over how... Poorly, the last scene has aged, and I really feel like they need to remaster that at some point with the effects of the ghosts coming out of the Ark (laughs) of the Covenant because they just look terrible. Like, this whole movie is about practical special effects and really good set pieces because of it, except that scene. And so why not just rework it in some CGI, clean it up a little bit? It's not like Lucasfilm doesn't have the capability. So I ended up at a 9.5. I think this combined a lot of elements. And again, I think being really good or being the best of a type of movie or the best to do it in certain fashions or the best to do it up to that point, that all becomes novel to me. So I'll go with a 9.5. It ends at a 9.25 average for us. Classicness. I know I normally start at a 7, And our original classicness score was an 8. And I thought, gosh, an 8 was about right. But I think I have to take it back down to a 7, actually. This seems so ingrained and commonplace to everybody from a pop culture standpoint that we might miss some of the big issues that I have with this. Diversity, like most movies we talk about, given that all the Egyptians are white, John Rhys Davis is a Welshman playing an Egyptian. We get a very early cameo by Alfred Molina, who's a British man, but playing a Peruvian in the first scene. We get central characters are, that are all either European or American, so everybody else is white. And they're just it's a bunch of white guys doing this movie. I know it's 1981, but it does make an effect when this is supposed to be a world-hopping movie. It's going to be even worse when we visit Temple of Doom next week, but it still is something to be held up as a a problem that you couldn't give it up to a 10. Uh, The Marion treatment in this, that all of her motivations come from her affection for Indy. That's Karen Allen's complaint for the last 40 years. I don't know if I completely agree with it, but I understand it, and I don't know if I can grade it up based on that. She's pretty well a damsel, despite the earliest depictions of her as this hard-drinking, uh, kind of hard-nosed woman that could be a partner for Indiana Jones on this adventure. She often is being put in situations where he's got to rescue her all the time. Is that really what we want to say from a classic movie, per se? I know that you usually have a comment on that when it comes to this particular category, Nazis make for great and easy bad guys, and the general history is right, but villains are rarely as obvious and two-dimensional as they are in this movie. There are a ton of easily questionable plot holes. I'll have more for that in remaining questions. Finally, the vast majority of special effects are great practical set pieces, but I remember this from the first episode. The most memorable scene now looks terrible, and they really need to remaster that. I, I hate to keep hitting on that point, but there are just some small pieces here and there that you can pick at with this movie because everybody's seen it 40 times. So I I went down to a 7. Again, the classicness issue
1: starts at a 5 for me and goes up or down from there. And it has a little bit of wiggle room for me simply because... It's a a period piece. It's set in the 19, or in 1936, at a time where the values and how women were treated and everything was different, and it's reflective of that. So I couldn't give it too much downgrade for that, as if, but the special effects are weak. They did what they could at the time. There weren't that many good ones. So to that extent, it's a little dated and um, lack of diversity of the cast. The idea of international cast was basically adding some Brits.
0: Even a British man doing the French part.
1: I understand
0: that, so I I stuck with the same one, which was an 8. So that's 7.5 between us. Rewatchability, the original score on this one was a 9.25. I'll let you go first.
1: Well, to me, rewatchability, if it's a film that uh, I would put on when I'm having a bad day and feel better, that's an eight or higher. And this is a film that I enjoy and I like watching and I like watching periodically. Am I going to go out of my way to watch it? No, probably not. I might if it's on and I want to watch it every few years simply because it's a good film. Uh, So actually I went down from the rewatchability. We had a 9.5, I think, in the original score. My 9.25. Yeah, I'm going to go down to a 7.5 because it's on the list of something that I would like to rewatch that I enjoy rewatching, but it's not a go-to for me.
0: That's fair. I'll end up raising it because originally I wanted to go with a 9.5, This is one of the movies that I probably watched the most over the course of my life. I probably have watched this movie at least once per year for the last 15 or so years. It just comes up often, and it's one of those films that I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is here, I'll stream it, or I'll throw it on, or whatever else. It's an easy movie to rewatch. I don't really have to think twice about ever trying to rewatch an Indiana Jones movie. It's one of those that just falls in a certain category for me of films I'm just going to constantly re-watch. And it falls inside about the top five to ten films that I have no problem putting on at any point at any time and just easily sitting and enjoying it as much as I did the first time. As much as I would have liked to have knocked this down just slightly, I don't think I can and do service to myself. I'm going to go with a ten. So then that is... between us. And then we throw in. So the original audience score that we had for this one was a 9.6. It's still 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it only has 92% from Google users, making it a 9.4. So let's add that all up. That was a 9.75 for Legacy. A 9.38 for Impact Significance. A 9.25 for Novelty a 7.5 for classicness and an 8.75 for rewatchability. Plus the 9.4 for the audience score gives us a 54.03 and raises it from number 30 on the list in between Ferris Bueller and the social network to number three on the list. Wow. Just in between 12 Angry Men and All the President's Men. Okay. Okay. So, remaining questions. We did not do this on the original episode, and so I'd like to include this here. But what do you got? How long does the ark remain in storage? Well, we know it's still there by the time they do the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2007. We also know what that warehouse is. It's Area 54. <laughs> Okay. I'm assuming you never saw that film, and that's just fine, but that that is revealed in there. I see. The first one that I had down was, why doesn't the leading car just pull over in front of the truck during the truck chase? It wouldn't be able to get by, and you could have surrounded Jones with, like, five people with guns. (laughs) It's just like driving ahead of the, the whole time, and meanwhile, you get Belloc and major, I don't even remember his name, just turning around, looking at what's going on in this whole truck chase, but they're either sandwiched right next to a cliff or they're going through this town that has a very narrow road. Just pull over and then shoot him. Like, this isn't rocket science. Do you have any others? No, well, you have to remember, this is
1: supposedly almost cartoonish.
0: Oh, I know. It's supposed to be fantastical. And so, again, the fact that we've seen this thing... For 40 years and thousands of times, people are just going to pick this apart relentlessly. Well, okay, Th- this is one.
1: They're on there, they're
0: digging in, and
1: they're extracting the Ark. And it's like they're doing it in broad daylight. And like no one notices a whole group of people up on top of the hill doing this until Balak comes out in the morning and goes, Oh, look at that. You should probably get all your men together.
0: I mean, are they like blind? No, that I actually believe because there were so many people working and digging around the site that a few guys wasn't necessarily going to be noticed that they were just digging in a new place. But when everybody was asleep and nothing was going on and then those guys are there, then that's when you notice them. To me, that, that actually is a little bit more believable than my next question why are there thousands of snakes that just congregate in one place in the well of souls? Like, is this now the snake central? Is there like some special snake food? Yeah. What are they eating each other? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's seems rather implausible that you just have this pit of snakes randomly in this one spot that you need to protect the Ark, Unless God is somehow commanding the snakes to be around the Ark. Well, and of course, you
1: tip over the big statue and crash through the wall, and you use that, and you find an opening that comes out onto this, you know, wall. It's like, where did that wall come from? Maybe if you were an archaeologist, you'd see, hey, there's a wall. I wonder what's on the other side of that. Well, he did, and that's how they escaped. Well, I know, but why... you're, you're digging through the sand trying to find this opening and you just ignore this opening or this wall that could potentially lead into
0: where you're trying to go. So here's another one for you. And you're more of our military expert on the show. Now, how long do you think it would take a German U-boat to go from uh, near-ish Italy or in between Italy and Greece, to a Greek isle, maybe a couple hundred miles, a couple thousand miles, or whichever island they end up with the final scene on. Because they show it on the map. Oh, it take a couple of weeks, easily. Okay. I was guessing maybe a couple of days. Now, those ships are awfully small, and there aren't a lot of places to go. How does Indiana Jones hide on a boat that size for weeks Well, he's not in it. He's on top of it. So the submarine never submerges for the entire trip. No, he does, like, go up into the place where you can go down into the ship because they're submerging about the point where we leave off camera before they get back to the base or whatever this is. But I'm just saying, like, wouldn't somebody notice Indiana Jones in a very small uniform? Yes, not to mention, what did he eat or drink? Again, it, we're able to easily pick this apart, but... Um, yeah, and that's one another of the biggest one. And You're biggest in a desert. Where, where is he drinking anything? Here's the other thing. This has been the thing that I've thought since literally the first time I watched it, and it bugs me every time. How the fuck does he know that closing his eyes is going to keep him safe? There's no inclination. There's no explanation whatsoever. There's no exposition earlier in the movie that you can draw upon. It's just close your eyes and you'll be okay well they could easily have explained it because the
1: story of Saul and his wife who turns to a pillar of salt okay all he said is, is Miriam remember Saul don't clo- or don't look at the at the fire something to that effect at least portions of the public would have had some clue but it's irrelevant
0: okay. How do they get off the island if everybody else is dead? <laughs> Are they able to operate a German U-boat by themselves? Is there a little dinghy on the shore?
1: I don't think Harrison Ford would would appreciate referring to it as a little dinghy.
0: Harrison Ford probably would be very grumpy if anyone talked to him. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so then the final question is the same one that was raised by the popular TV show The Big Bang Theory, that essentially Indiana Jones is inconsequential to the plot of this movie, that the Germans still would have found the Ark, still would have gotten killed by the end of opening up the Ark, and nothing would have happened. Do you buy that? Um, or less, maybe. See, I've I've placed a lot of thought into this one. It's possible, if you really play it out, that because Major Tot has to follow Indiana Jones in order to find Marion, that the Germans never find Marion and never find the crystal in order to look in the right place. And they're just digging and digging and digging. But they have years to do that. So it's possible that they do eventually find the right place to find the Well of the Souls, just over years of trying to search for it in this one place. They just don't have the capacity to do it right away. Two, if they take the Ark and they take it back to its logical conclusion, der Führer, that eventually they open it up for the first time in front of Hitler, and that ends World War II in advance. Mm. So that's an interesting aside. But three, if they don't open it because somebody warns them not to do it, but they just use the power of the Ark supposedly, do they end up coming out on top in World War II? And that's where Indiana Jones recovering the Ark actually is contributing to the plot. Yes. Which one of those is most
1: realistic to you? The Ark ends up in a storage bin. What they should have done is had uh, the Ark end up in Los Alamos,
0: and then you really have a story. So what you're saying is is we don't really know what happened at Hiroshima or Nagasaki? No, we knew what happened
1: there. What we don't know is how we really came up with the bomb.
0: Mm. Could have been the Ark. And there are conclusions to be drawn from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull as far as nuclear capability. Mm. So, uh, any other remaining questions? No, not pertaining to the movie anyway. Okay. So, before we go, let us just take a second. Do we have anyone to remember this week?
1: Yes, we do. Patricia Pat Hitchcock, daughter of Alfred Hitchcock, uh, English-born American actress who uh, starred in several of her father's films. Her most notable roles were in Stage Fright, Strangers on a Train, and Psycho. Interesting is that uh, Hitch, as everyone called him in Hollywood, wanted to protect or have something to leave for his daughter, and so he made arrangements in a a deal with Paramount to buy back the rights to five of his films, Rear Window, Rope, uh, The Trouble with Harry, Dial M for Murder, and The Man Who Knew Too Much. And in his will... He directed that each of those films would be remastered and released in theaters at five-year intervals after his death. And all royalties of the films, and every time they showed on television or in streaming, went to Pat Hitchcock. So uh, she was 93, so she had a very long
0: life, and my guess is fairly lucrative life. And we're supposed to be doing three of those films this October. Yes, we are. So you can guess at which ones those will be in advance of that. All right, any remaining thoughts for the week before we cover the last two of this trilogy? No, i just thinking
1: back of the original episode and when we started this, how far we've come on this journey.
0: <laughs> My thoughts, exactly.
1: Yeah, kind of... Uh... Very uh, amateurish when we started. Not that we're huge professionals in the business right now, but I think we're growing and we're doing better. And I think the, I hope the fans appreciate what we've done, and I hope it's stirred some conversations and people have looked at some films that they had never thought about or heard about before and have actually watched them. So
0: I guess that's the only comment I have. Yeah, Trying to revisit some of these. It's a fun exercise at times, especially some of those early ones from season one, because of how much the show has changed, how much our thoughts have changed, how much the categories on the show or the rubric have changed. And I know it was, what, maybe a year and a half ago. I think the original episode is February 27th, 2020. And we're doing this on August 11th of 2021. It'll come out on the 18th. So roughly about, what, 18 months. But the amount of things that we've done and developed, even from January of this year, with our recordings, with our editing, with all the places that the show has just grown, all the guests that we've had. We we just got off a period where eight of our last 10 episodes, we were joined by somebody else. And I think half of those, somebody wasn't even in the same country. So it's kind of interesting where this has kind of taken us and where we're seeing the rest of the show go. I know that we have some pre-recorded episodes coming up next month for when we're supposed to be on vacation and then even into a little bit of October. And we've just got so many things coming up. I've already started thinking ahead to planned ideas for next year and season three, uh, specifically because it's the third season, I thought about doing a lot of trilogies. Okay. Maybe letting the fans vote on our new Twitter page. So you can certainly find us on Instagram or Twitter at GMote Podcast, G-M-O-A-T Podcast, to see any of our content currently. Uh, we have some stuff up there. We'll be creating some Twitter polls as we kind of go along That'll be incorporated into the show. But yeah, it's been a long, strange trip, but I'm glad that we're here and 78, 78 episodes. And I would, uh, again,
1: uh, encourage if if you would just please take a minute on whatever podcast app you uh, are using to listen to us and just give us a rating. It will go a long way to improving uh, our visibility to other listeners because there are things we would like to do and be able to, or would like to be able to do in the future, but we need to have a bigger audience in order to pull those off. So if you enjoy the show, please do that. I would appreciate it.
0: I'll also say a thank you to the the General Duncan family, our patron saint, the one who inspired the show, your dad among also our multiple family guests that we've had on the show so far and plan to have back at some point or another. So thank you to all of them for helping us be part of the show, even the episodes they're not on, making sacrifices to allow us to do this and being supportive when they're not on the show. Just a thank you to all of them as well. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones, and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are continuing our Indiana Jones quest with The Temple of Doom, also starring Harrison Ford, and then Kate Capshaw and ki Quin Quan. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You won't want to miss that one, so check out RealGood.com or the RealGood app to find out where the movie is streaming for you. Please like, follow, rate, and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or find Dana or I or the show on Twitter at TJ3Duncan, at Dana W. Duncan, or at gmotepodcast